say good morning to everyone. I uh, certainly appreciate the opportunity to, uh, uh, to be given the speaking slot this morning. Uh, Yancey asked me this morning if I wanted the, uh, the microphone on the tie or if I wanted the Garth Brooks microphone, so uh, I chose the Garth Brooks microphone. Um, certainly thankful to be here and, uh, and to be a part of this congregation. Um, uh, I have, for, some, for those of you who don't know, I, I work in the South Lake Colleyville area. In fact, me and my wife are looking to kind of relocate more kind of up in this area, uh, more north, if you will, uh, still a general large area, so um, to be closer up here, and uh, we're certainly thankful to, uh, to be a part of this congregation, and thank you for your welcome arms and your invitation for allowing us in. So, um, for those of you, um, yeah, some of you in here may know what this image is, and some of you in here may not know what this image is, and some of you in here may not be able to see this image, but if you look really closely right here, there's a small dot, and that is actually a very famous image. In fact, that's an image taken of Earth at approximately 3.7 billion miles away in February of 1990. In 1977, uh, NASA and a guy by the name of Carl Sagan worked on a project called Voyager 1 in which they launched this spacecraft into outer space. And its primary mission was to orbit our solar system, taking random photographs and sending those photographs back to NASA for analytics, research, and review. And so uh, what makes it fascinating uh, about Voyager 1 was it was never intended to return to Earth. In fact, after it completed its primary mission, it was just supposed to drift aimlessly into the heliosphere. And so what happened was, is in about 1990, NASA noticed that the, the battery power on this spacecraft began to diminish. And it was just skirting by Pluto. Now, when I was in high school, uh, Plato, uh, Pluto was a planet. I don't think they classify it so much that, as a planet anymore. But nonetheless, it was skirting by Pluto. And they began to notice that the battery power on the cameras on the Voyager 1 began to diminish. And so what they proposed to do was, they said, hey, let's turn uh, the cameras off. And at some point in the future, we'll turn those babies back on. And who knows what we'll find. I mean, we have yet to do that. It's going to be remarkable, fascinating when they do turn those cameras back on. It's going to be in a completely different galaxy, a completely different solar system. There's no telling uh, what we'll find. But before they turn those cameras off, Carl Sagan said, let's turn those cameras back one last time to Earth just to see how far we as a nation have gone in space exploration. And so that is actually a famous photograph. In fact, Carl Sagan wrote a book about it. It's called The Pale Blue Dot. And so... Uh, not only does it serve as, uh, a, as a famous image, it's, it's, a, it's an embodiment of how far we as a nation have gone in, spe in space exploration. It's an embodiment of how far we as a nation have gone in ingenuity and design. And so it's, very, it's a very proud picture that we as Americans share. But I want you to suppose for a minute that Voyager 1 was intended to return to Earth. And somehow, some way, uh, it re-entered into our atmosphere it landed out somewhere in the Pacific Ocean and our scientists got on their boats and they buzzed out there and they retrieved it and they brought it back into their laboratories and they put it under a microscope and they saw this. A living cell. What do you think would be trending the very next day all over social media? We have found life. We have found life on another planet. We have found another living organism. You know what fascinates me is some of those people in the same scientific community who would be screaming that we have found life are the same people who would look at that image and tell you, oh, that's not life. 
that's just kind of a blob of cells or a cluster of cells, but that's not life. I want to talk about this morning the issue of abortion. And you know, I'll be honest with you, it's a very uncomfortable issue. And it's not my intention this morning, if you're someone who's been involved in an abortion or had an abortion, to re-victimize anyone who may have been involved in the process. That's not my intention at all. My intention is to simply take the social issue, the social phenomenon we have in our culture, and hold it up to the Bible and see what the Bible says about it. You know, you and I as Christians don't take issues like this and run and hold them up to the 1964 Civil Liberties Act. We don't do that. You and I as Christians don't take issues like this and run and hold it up into societal norms and societal acceptance to determine how we are going to view issues like this. You and I as Christians don't take issues like this and moral issues and run and hold them up to a political platform to develop our perspective on issues like this. But yet we hold it up to God's Word to determine how we are to view things such as this. You know, one of the best lessons I've ever heard about this issue uh, was over a decade ago. It was Brother Jay Henderson gave this lesson, and I, I vividly remember him saying this. He said, you know, the question that you and I as civilized human beings in a civilized society should ask ourselves is this. Do I wish that my mother would have destroyed me in her womb? Nobody in their right mind would say that. Nobody in their right mind would have wished that their mother would have destroyed them in her womb. You know what the definition of abortion means? It means to stop something, to ultimately stop the development of something. And if you hit a child in the head with a hammer, you will stop his or her development. God is the giver of life. And because God is the giver of life, you and I do not have a right to take an innocent life. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, And God took man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And because God is the giver of life, you and I don't have a right to take it. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 20, Thou shalt not kill. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15, Know you not that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The Bible also says in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 17, Know you not these six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. In the United States, about half of all pregnancies are unintended. Of all unintended pregnancies, four in ten are aborted. There are approximately 1.21 million abortions in America each year. However, we're seeing a steady decline since the 1970s from Roe versus Wade. Every year in the world, there's approximately 40 to 50 million abortions. This corresponds to approximately 125,000 abortions per day. In the United States, where nearly half of all pregnancies are unintended, and 4 in 10 of these are terminated by abortion, there are only 3,000 abortions per day. However, again, we're seeing a significant decline in abortions from the present day, from the 1970s. In 2013, unmarried women accounted for 85.2% of all abortions. So why are people having abortions? You know, there's two main social studies that, uh, that look at this issue. One is the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, and the Guttmeyer Institute. And they surveyed a large population of women who had an abortion, and they come to find the reasons for this. Less than one. Less than 1% of women who had an abortion in this large population 
admitted that they were victims of rape. 3% chose to have an abortion because of fetal health problems. 4% chose to have an abortion because of physical health problems. 4%. The reason they chose to have an abortion was because they thought the child would interfere with their education or career. 7%. Not mature enough to raise a child. 8%. Don't want to be a single mother. 19%. Done having children. 23%. I can't afford a baby. 25%. Not ready for a child. And 6%. Other. Let's look at the gestational week of abortions. Within less than six weeks, 34.6 of abortions occur. At seven weeks, 17.9% occur. At 18 weeks, 13.4% occur. 10 weeks, 5.8% of abortions occur. At 11 weeks, 4.7% occur. At 12 weeks, 3.6% occur. At 14 to 15 weeks, 3.4% occur. At 16 to 7 weeks, 1.9% occurs. And 18 to 20 weeks, 1.8% uh, occurs. And so how do abortions take place? Well, there's three, uh, three primary procedures in which this happens. The first is courage, a.k.a. vacuum aspiration. 76.5% of reported abortions are reported by courage, which includes dilation and evacuation of the child. Surgical scraping tools are used and forceps are used to abort, abort the child and the child is vacuumed up. Number two, medical abortions. Medical abortions are made up of 22% of all abortions. It works by prohibiting the synthesis and the functionality of progesterone in the woman. And once that's compromised, the child dies. 3%, partial birth abortions, and probably the most disgusting of them all. At the end of the second trimester, into the third trimester, the fetus is removed from the uterus through a birth canal, feet first. Suction is used to remove the brain and spinal fluid to collapse the skull and to allow com complete removal of the child. Only 5% of U.S. abortions occur in hospitals, 2% occur in physician's offices, and the rest occur in freestanding abortion clinics without any established doctor-patient relationship. Recently, the average cost of a non-hospital abortion with local anesthetics at 10 weeks of a gestation was $480. The average cost of medication for abortion up to nine weeks of gestation, $504. And so uh, the early church uh, dealt with issues similar like this, but not only the early church, um, we have writings in history, historical recordings of, of Christians uh, who, who had made comments about this type of issue. In 1774 A.D., uh, we read of a man by the name of Barnabas who was noted for writing, Thou shalt not slay the child by procuring an abortion, nor again shalt thou destroy it after it's born. Two, thou shalt not procure an abortion, nor destroy a newborn child. Diaki, which is in 150 A.D. And then uh, Felix uh, Mark Octavius in 170 A.D. was noted for saying, There are some women among you who by drinking special potions have extinguished the life of the future human within their very bowels thus committing murder before they're even born. Israel, in their stubborn rebellion to God, destroyed their children. If you look in Psalms 106, verse 36 through 40, it says, And they served their idols, which were a snare unto them. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils. And they shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and their daughters whom they sacrificed unto idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they defiled their own works and went a-whoring with their own inventions. Therefore was the wrath of God kindled against his people, insomuch 
that he abhorred their own inheritance. That he abhorred their own inheritance. Our society today has become of the nations of old. And just as Israel destroyed their children in the fire of Melech, ours today are being destroyed by the surgical weapons of the 21st century. Our society and moral confusion on this is predicated on the deceitfulness that alienates us from the truth of God's Word. You can spend half of your life in a federal penitentiary for killing an unborn eagle but casually walk into a clinic and have your child assassinated the same day and walk out. You know, Paul talked a little bit about this, about our minds being darkened and being alienated from the truth of God's Word. If you look in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, This I say unto you, Therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk in the rest of the Gentiles' walk, in the futility of their minds, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being in past feelings have given themselves over to lewdness and to work all in cleanliness and greediness. So many lives today are being destroyed by abortion. I've sat in the halls of academia, I've heard the arguments, I've heard the philosophical arguments, I've heard the political arguments, and and I've heard all of those things. But you want to know what the reality of this is? This is the reality of it. A young lady, 25 years old, from Florida wrote this. First, if you're reading this, don't have an abortion. It was my biggest mistake and the hardest thing I have ever and ever will do. I found out I was pregnant about eight weeks. I didn't have any symptoms, so I never knew. My father was a guy I had seen casually and I've known for four to five years. I thought so highly of him until now. My friends were my biggest support system. I desperately wanted to keep him, but I came from a very strict and religious family. My parents were not supportive, and my mother refused to let me back in the house if I didn't have an abortion. I was hurting so much because I had nowhere else to go. That's where I lived. That was my home. That was my family. She supported my younger sister, who had a baby at the age of 20, but she wouldn't support me because she didn't want to deal with any more shame. I've never felt so hurt before. I've always come second. So with the world turning against me, I decided to have an abortion at 14 weeks, which made it even harder. It's so hard to hide the pain from everyone, it gets exhausting. I'm pretending to be someone else. It's so hard to look at a baby and try to act like nothing happened. I take multiple showers a day because it's easier to cry in there with the water dripping down my face. I can scream in pain so no one else can hear me. I cry every time I'm in the car because no one is around to watch me and see me. Young lady, 23 years old, from Mena, Arkansas, wrote this. At the age of 20, I moved out of state to be with my boyfriend. I had plans of joining the military and hadn't planned on having a baby. Honestly, I didn't think I could have children after three years in a previous relationship without pregnancies. I ended up pregnant with a month of being here. He was so excited, I was so scared. His family made me feel like I had no choice, that I had to, that I had to have the baby. My dreams died and I felt trapped. I made my appointment in secret and ran away from him and his family to come back home. I remember the day. I cried so much before, during, and after. I even asked to see it when it was done. I carried the ultrasound around with me for days and cried as I held it in my hands. I refused to take the meds they gave me because I felt I deserved to feel every ounce of the pain. 
I told the daddy I miscarried because I didn't want to hurt him. But I did anyways. He knew in his heart what I did. Our relationship will never be the same. I eventually told him and his family the truth. I went back afterwards and cried when I would look at him. I cried when he would touch me. I hated myself and wanted nothing more than just to be dead with my baby so I could hold it. The damage is forever. A year and a half later, we got pregnant again, but I actually miscarried, and I blamed myself even more. I felt that God was punishing me for killing my first child. My boyfriend showed no emotion and told me it was because I had killed our first child. So losing one felt like losing two. I feel my guilt every day and fight the urge to die because now I have a living child. But it will never fill the hole in my heart. I would do anything just to take it all back. A child, whether it is born in the institution of marriage or whether it's not born in the institution of marriage, is loved and valued in the eyes of God and does not deserve death. These young women are forevermore saturated and tormented in the guilt each and every day that they wake up because they're, con they're confused and they're deceived by these clinics, by these doctors, by our educational system, and their lives are forever destroyed. This is the reality. This is the truth behind abortion. And what this issue really predicates itself on is intrinsic value. Do you intrinsically value what is inside the womb or do you not? Because if you intrinsically value what is inside the womb, then you admit and you consider it life. And since it's life, it deserves to live, no matter how small, how undeveloped, how unperfect, how immature that it is. It's life. And because it's life, it deserves to exist. But if you intrinsically disvalue what's in the womb, you can only stand on two, you can only stand on two platforms. Alternative, you consent that abortion is the taking of life. And that, that, but the wrong outweighs the value of life. And so if that's the way you feel, then, then you don't have much uh, value for life itself. Secondly, if you stand on the premise that what's in the womb is not life, but if it's not life, it can only be four other things. It's either nothing, inanimate matter, an extension of the mother, or some other species. And we know that it's something or our society wouldn't be having this huge political moral debate about it. We know that it's not inanimate matter because it has grappled transformation of non-life to, to non-life to life as a scientific impossibility. We know that it's not an extension of the mother because at the point of conception we have our own DNA and genetic code and genetic makeup that distinguishes us from every other individual. And we know that it's not some other species because that's just so asinine that it's comical. You know, God values what's inside the womb. In Jeremiah chapter 1, I'm so off my PowerPoint this morning, I apologize. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you as a prophet of nations. Isaiah chapter 44, and verse 2. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you in the womb, who will help you? God says, I knew who you were before you were even conceived. God says, I had a hand in the development of you in your mother as an individual. How many today of our children whose lives were taken from them who would have been the ones who developed a cure for cancer? 
how many of our children's lives were taken today who would have been the ones in some way, shape, form, or fashion who would have somehow helped this miserable world out to some degree, but their lives were stolen from them. What is it in the mother? Is it a baby? Is it a, is, is it a glob of cells? What is it? The Bible says in Luke chapter 1, verse 41, and it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. That word babe there translates in the Greek, brephos. It's the same word used in Luke chapter 2, verse 12, Luke chapter 2, verse 16, Luke chapter 18, verse 15. The Bible does not make a distinction between a baby, whether it's outside of its mother or whether it's inside of its mother. In Genesis chapter 25, verses 21 through 22, now Isaac pleaded with the Lord, with his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children, children, struggled within her womb. The Holy Spirit called them children within their mother. What do you call them? In Exodus chapter 21, verses 20 through 22 through 25, if men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him. And he shall pay as the judge determines. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And so if two men quarrel and they hurt a woman, they're going to suffer, they're going to suffer the punishment at the hands of her husband. But if they quarrel and they hurt a woman so that they hurt her child, God says it's going to be eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That should give us an indication how God feels about children. If God's people don't stand up on this issue, who will? They don't have a voice. And I'm so sick and tired of being told that we as Christians should sit in the pews and come and be downtrodden pilgrims and not have a voice in society. You and I have a right. Does it mean that we'll change the world? Does it mean that sometimes we won't be chasing the wind. But we have a right to stand up for what's right. We have a right to voice an opinion for the helpless and the needy. In Psalms chapter 82, verses 3 through 5, defend the poor, the fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and the needy, deliver the poor and the needy, and free them from the hand of the wicked. There's honor in that. For those of you who have maybe somehow in some way had your life impacted by this issue, I sympathize with you, and I could never imagine uh, the pain that maybe someone who has, has experienced this and went through. But if that's ever the case, I, I just want people to know that there is forgiveness, and, and there is forgiveness. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No matter how bad the sin is, God is still willing to forgive us. And even though sometimes we cannot change the consequences of our actions, we can't have forgiveness. And so for those who might be tormented in the sin, know that God loves you and that God will forgive you. And as we close, I just want to leave you with the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, 
verses 13 through 15. Then little children were brought unto him, and he put them in his hands, uh, and he put his hands on them and prayed. But the disciples rebuked them, and Jesus said, Let the little children come unto me, and do not forbid them, for so much is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. I thank you for your attention this morning. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak. Um, if you're someone who needs prayers of the congregation, if you're someone who wishes to be immersed with our Lord in baptism, we ask that you come as we stand and sing.